Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As you probably know, on Becoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. I welcome your questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast. Please send those to OnBecomingPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Given our continually growing listenership, I think it's safe to say that the content of the podcast is connecting with many people. But we're always interested in knowing about which aspects of the podcast particularly resonate with you. If you're enjoying the podcast, I also invite you to support it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Or if you feel that you'd like to support us with a one-time gift, you can do so at paypal.com or with the PayPal app. In other case, our username is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. In the previous episode, I mentioned the costs of putting this podcast together and distributing it. But I'd also like to gently remind you that my podcast reflects the fruit of many decades of study and teaching. My goal in the podcast is to share with you what I know in a way that helps you better understand yourself and the world. I hope you're finding that to be the case. Many thanks to you who have indicated your appreciation by way of support, as well as to those of you who have reached out and let me know that you're enjoying the podcast. The episode released earlier this week analyzed an interview with Bradley Onishi that appeared recently in Rolling Stone. As I said in that episode, I don't see a civil war around the corner for the U.S., at least not anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that the kinds of concerns Onishi raises are unimportant. In fact, it's just the opposite. However, what I want to do in this episode is to go much deeper into the roots of Christian nationalism. Even if you listen to the last episode, you may have serious questions along the lines of, where exactly does this kind of thinking come from? A pretty important question. If you're not an academic, you may have questions, doubts, about the value of theories or ideas. Are those just things that philosophers talk about? Do they have any connection to the real world? My short answer is this. I became a philosopher precisely because I believe that ideas change the world, both for good and for ill. Everyone, of course, is in some sense a philosopher, since all of us are trying to make sense of the world, something we're doing at every moment. You might have heard that Karl Marx was not too keen on philosophers. He is famous for saying, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. In that respect, Marx was truly an academic activist. He wasn't interested in merely putting forth theories. He wanted to change the world. But think about that goal of changing the world. The only reason you'd want to change it would be if you thought that there was something wrong that needed to be fixed, or at least thought that the current practice could be improved. However, you'd only be able to come to such conclusions after you've already interpreted the world. I've mentioned the word hermeneutics on this podcast many times. The reason for that is simple. I believe that everything boils down to hermeneutics, namely how we see or interpret something. How we interpret something is key to whether we take it to be a good thing or a bad thing. Now, there's a deeper question lurking here, one that concerns Mark and his predecessor, the German philosopher Hegel. Don't worry, though. Don't worry. This isn't going to get technical. Marx was convinced that societies changed due to what he 
termed material conditions. In other words, how you and I experience the world in the most basic day-to-day -day way is what leads to change. Material conditions sounds a bit vague, but Marx simply means your environment. Whether you live in the country or the city, whether you're wealthy enough not to worry about your next meal, or whether surviving each day is truly a challenge, whether you are supported by your community or you feel all alone. Marx thought that our material conditions greatly affect how we think about things. I think that's right. However, Marx's point is often contrasted with that of Hegel. The supposed contrast is that whereas for Marx the world is interpreted and altered due to material conditions, for Hegel ideas are about are what bring about change. Philosophers use the term false dilemma for any choice that's presented as if there were only two options. I think setting up a choice between material conditions on the one hand versus ideas on the other hand is simply a false dilemma. Rather than being in opposition to one another, our world and how we interpret the world are in continual dialectic in which one continually alters the other. As I said, Marx believes that philosophers have only interpreted the world but the real need is to change it. Yet the only reason you'd want to change it is if you thought that there really was something that needed changing, and you'd only come to that conclusion on the basis of how you interpret the world. To put this a different way, Marx thought a major problem facing those who are poor is that they often lack an understanding of how they got to be poor in the first place, and thus they're unable to see which options might be available to change their material conditions. Again, I think Marx is right. But it should be clear by now that interpreting one's situation is absolutely crucial to changing it. There's no dilemma precisely because material conditions and ideas are very closely related. We could equally say that the kinds of ideas you have greatly affect how you think about your material conditions. With this thought in mind, let's consider both the material conditions and the ideas that have made Christian nationalism plausible to some people. For those attracted to Christian nationalism or ideas connected to it, the world is seen as a dangerous and threatening place. Is this a new development? Well, some dangers, of course, like crime, have been around as long as, well, people have been around. Moreover, Christians are usually aware that Christians in the past have been persecuted, though the reality is the reports of early Christians being thrown to the lions and other such violence has been pretty exaggerated. But now evangelical Christians in the U.S. see themselves as the ones who are victimized. One problem with a claim like that is that it obscures the real oppression that Christians in places like North Korea or Iraq have experienced. Yes, there is real persecution of Christians, but it's very hard to make a case for anything even remotely like that happening in the United States. I've mentioned the utterly crazy thing that the recently departed Pat Robertson said that the persecution of evangelical Christians is just like what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, more terrible than anything suffered by any minority in history. That's not simply false, it's a ludicrous claim. More than that, it makes evangelicals seem a bit daft, as they say on this side of the pond. Indeed, the persecution that evangelicals lament is often based on things like prayer being removed from the public schools, the decisions of some city councils not to have a nativity scene or Christmas tree in front of city hall, the substitution of happy holiday for Merry Christmas, the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate, which, by the way, was struck down in a case involving the owners of Hobby Lobby, and other things that they consider to be discrimination. 
Or consider this example. In the film, yes, film as in fiction, titled God is Not Dead, a college student, Christian student at an evil secular university is told by his atheist professor, philosophy professor, that he has a choice between debating the professor on the existence of God or signing something that declares that God is dead. Talk about a false dilemma. It is simply impossible for me to imagine that any professor would do that. So the very premise of the film is based not on any facts, but is just pure fiction. In the film, the courageous student debates the evil philosophy professor who finally admits that he hates God due to his mother's death. Somehow this is taken to be a vindication of the thesis that God is not dead, though discovering that someone doesn't believe in God because something bad has happened in his or her life hardly proves anything either way. However, just so you know, I'm well aware that academia in the U.S. is largely secular, liberal, and not all that welcoming to people of faith. Someone I know mentioned to me that when he took his Intro to Philosophy course at a well-known secular college, on the first day of class, the professor asked, how many of you are religious believers? To those who'd raised their hands, a lot of them actually, his response was, well, you won't be when you finish the course. I want to make it clear that I simply don't think philosophy professors should be in the business of pushing any kind of theist or atheist agenda. From my point of view, this kind of pressure is simply unacceptable. And to put it really bluntly, it's also incredibly unprofessional. However, it's hard to see that this is truly oppression. I suspect that the philosophy professor would have been planning to give reasons for his view during the course, reasons that he believes will change people's minds. On the other hand, I can equally imagine some apologist or evangelist making a similar claim. You may not believe in God, but by the time I finish my sermon or present my argument, you will believe. If what the professor is doing counts as oppression, then what the evangelist or apologist is doing is likewise oppressive. But I don't think either counts as oppression. However, there is a difficulty that needs to be addressed. The author of the book of 2 Timothy, which used to be attributed to Paul, though many scholars now think otherwise, says this, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Perhaps when whoever was writing that the situation was such that persecution was to be expected. After all, this is supposed to be a letter from Paul while he's in prison. So it's probably best to read that passage as reflective of a time, but not necessarily as a prediction for all time. But you can easily turn the statement around. Namely, if you're not being persecuted, then maybe you might not be living a godly life. With that concept in mind, one might want to interpret various things as acts of persecution in order to confirm that one is truly living a godly life. In that case, you'd almost be looking for persecution. And when it didn't happen, you might think that your life wasn't godly enough. In short, those are some of the material conditions for evangelicals in the United States. But what are the ideas or theories that have led to the idea of Christian nationalism? We can start with the idea that Christians have often striven to make life on earth more like life in heaven. If you believe that Jesus is Lord of all, then you would probably want society to mirror that reality. But evangelicals in the U.S. are seeing that they're quickly becoming a minority, that their way of being in the world is increasingly seen as marginal. 
Despite the common use of the phrase white evangelicals, the reality is that evangelicalism in the U.S. has always been a white thing. So the decline of evangelicalism does rather easily connect to the idea that white people are losing their majority status, which partly explains the desire to turn back the clock. In the previous episode, I mentioned that Bradley Onishi believes that race is the primary issue. My take is that it is indeed an important issue, but I don't think it fully explains what's happening. So let's take a look at the source for Christian nationalistic thinking. That source turns out to be Rusas John Rushduni, who is the thinker that gave us what is called Christian Reconstructionism. Rushduni was born in Armenia, but his family moved to California to escape the Armenian genocide of 1915. Perhaps I'm the only one to think this, but barely escaping genocide might make you just a little fearful. That's one part of his own material conditions. Another part is that he grew up when Franklin D. Roosevelt was president, when the New Deal was being rolled out. He started reading a libertarian magazine titled Faith and Freedom, which was against taxation and intervention by the government. You can see how escaping genocide caused by a powerful government might make you averse to a strong government. A further feature of his life was that he and his wife worked on a Native American reservation. From their point, the deplorable situation of those on the reservation had been directly caused by the U.S. government. Precisely the support that was given to those on the reservation had led to irresponsibility on their part. Rashtuni became a Presbyterian minister, but he wasn't just an ordinary Presbyterian. He was an Orthodox Presbyterian, which is a group that was and still is extremely conservative. For instance, it was the Orthodox Presbyterians who petitioned Bill Clinton, then President of the United States, in 1993 to make it illegal for homosexuals to serve in the military. In their petition, there's the statement, and I'm quoting, homosexuality is a reproach to any nation. It undermines the family and poses a substantial threat to the general health, safety, and welfare of our citizens. That's just one example of what I mean by conservative. In the previous episode, I mentioned that Christian nationalists are post-millennialists, which means they expect Christ to return someday, and they are busy preparing for that event. A key element of that preparation is not merely the conversion of the entire world to Christianity, but also the reclamation of all institutions, including governments, from the satanic powers that currently rule the world. How are they to do that? by adopting the Mosaic Law as the law of every land. The reason this movement, inspired by Rushduni, is termed Christian Reconstructionism, is that such folks literally believe that society as it currently stands needs to be destroyed in order to be rebuilt, which means that Reconstructionism is only possible by way of a prior deconstruction. That's an important part of the appeal of Trump, since evangelicals deplore the secularity of the U.S., someone who would come in and burn the whole thing down is to be welcomed because that gives evangelicals the chance to rebuild the world in their, uh, oh, I mean, in God's image. In other words, if you were to appeal to a Trumpist reconstructionist or nationalist by saying that Trump is literally destroying democracy in the United States, their response would be, not soon enough. The sooner the U.S. is destroyed, the sooner it can be rebuilt 
as a truly Christian nation. One important piece of the Reconstructionist puzzle is Rush Juni's embrace of a key idea from Cornelius Van Til, who was a Dutch Reformed thinker. Reformed thinkers stressed that human beings currently live in a state of total depravity. As one of my friends used to joke, it's the only point of Calvinism that I can live up to. But total depravity doesn't mean that things are as bad as they can get, or that you, as a person, are the worst possible person. Instead, it's just the idea that human sinfulness affects everything about human beings, including human minds. Thus, Van Til argued that we need to start with the belief, one, that God exists, and two, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Now, I need to make it clear that according to Van Til, starting with those particular assumptions is the only way to be rational which means that people who don't start with those presuppositions, namely secular people or people of other religions, are irrational. This is why Rashtuni makes the strange-sounding claim that, and now I'm quoting, all non-Christian knowledge is sinful, invalid nonsense. The only valid knowledge that non-Christians possess is stolen from Christian theistic sources. I'm not Reformed, despite many people trying. And I don't believe in any of the five points of Calvinism. Moreover, I think this view that only Christians have the truth is both untrue and dangerous. But you can see how if you believe that only Christians can be truly rational, then it's easy to dismiss everyone else. However, even Van Til was unable to embrace Rushduni's Reconstructionism and worried that people might think that Rushduni had gotten his ideas from him. As much as I disagree with that view, I do think Van Til is right, that we all have presuppositions with which we start. Gadamer also thinks that there is no neutrality, though he doesn't put this in terms of sin, and certainly doesn't think that only Christians can reason properly. Instead, Gadamer would say, given that we are finite beings, there are many things we don't know, as well as the problem that if we start with bad presuppositions, we may not be able to understand correctly. Gautamer shows us, I think pretty forcefully, that we always approach a situation or sit down to read a book with certain presuppositions or assumptions in mind. We are only able to relate to new things in light of what we already believe. When we encounter something new or different, we use the information we already know to evaluate this new thing. We may decide that our presuppositions are wrong on the basis of what we discover, So our presuppositions can change, sometimes radically. For many people, attending college or going to the uni, as people say over here, is one of the times in one's life where many presuppositions get challenged. I've had many students take my Intro to Philosophy course with a presupposition like, this is going to be really theoretical and boring. And then they discover that many of the topics connect to them very personally. But the important point here is that there is no neutral place to begin, since we always embark on investigations into the truth from wherever we happen to be. Of course, the neutrality that Reconstructionists talk about is hardly what most people would consider to be neutral. Another Reconstructionist, Gary DeMar, claims that, and I'm quoting, the state cannot be neutral towards the Christian faith. Any obstacle that would jeopardize the preaching of the word of God must be opposed by civil government. Just from that quote alone, you can see that the very concept of religious freedom 
held by the Reconstructionists makes it impossible for people of other religions, or God forbid, an atheist to have any sense of freedom. Because of Mantell's influence, Rush Dooney became convinced that human beings are only capable of reasoning correctly if they start with a world in which God is at the center. On his view, we were created by God, and we can only truly be human if we try to align our thoughts with those of God. Unlike Gadamer, Rush Dooney thinks that our sinfulness means that we cannot trust our reason and must instead trust in God. Put otherwise, the Enlightenment idea that we are all rational beings who can think and act on our own is, according to Rush Dooney, simply false. If you're thinking this sounds a bit medieval, you're right. In effect, Rush Dooney is attempting to go back to a time in which God is seen as central to the world, which would literally be the Middle Ages. While Rush Dooney gives some lip service to the idea of separation of church and state, he believes that this is yet another false dichotomy, for the ultimate ruler is God himself, and thus both church and state are under his reign. One of the more important aspects of Rushduni's thought is his repudiation of democracy, which he describes as a heresy, that's his word, that has, and again I'm going to quote from him, worked havoc in church and state. On his view, Christianity and democracy are inevitably enemies because democracy presumes that human beings can rule themselves, whereas Rushduni thinks that only God's will matters. Not surprisingly, then, he views the U.S. Constitution as designed primarily to protect religion from governmental interference, as well as to ensure state rights. If you're hearing that as a reference to the position of the Confederacy, you're correct. Rushduni was a strong proponent of segregation and believed that slavery in the southern states was a good thing. More on that in the next episode. Rushduni's major scholarly contribution is the Institutes of Biblical Law, which is a massive tome in three volumes. If you know anything about John Calvin, you might realize that Rushduni's title mirrors Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Just as Calvin transformed Geneva by way of his Reformed theology, so Rushduni is calling for a transformation of the U.S. into a theonomy, that is, a state that is ruled by divine law. If you've heard Christian nationalists talk about having the Bible as the basis for state law, you now know where that idea comes from. Reconstructionists believe that there are, in effect, three governments, family, church, and state, in that precise order. Those who lead these different governments must be Christian men. It shouldn't be hard to see that the most important government here is the church. So what is the state government supposed to do? Well, basically, the job of the state government, according to Rushduni, is to build and maintain roads, enforce contracts, things like that. The Reconstructionists want a land in which there are no unions, no unemployment benefits, no Social Security, and no laws protecting the environment. Rushduni was a major proponent of Christian schools and homeschooling, and his vision of the future is one in which there simply wouldn't be any public schools because they'd all be Christian schools. Now, how would this work out in practice? Well, you may know that Old Testament law is kind of strict. The Apostle Paul saw Jesus as offering a way to go beyond that law, but Rush Dooney wants to embrace it. 
Now, I want to make that point a bit more forcefully. Paul thought that Jesus' death and resurrection actually freed people from the need to follow Mosaic law. Rush Dooney, on the other hand, wants to embrace that law as fully as possible. You should know that such a view is fundamentally anti-Christian. It stands in sharp contrast to virtually the whole of Christian history. So, in embracing the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, he's perfectly fine with the death sentence for a whole raft of things. Adultery, bestiality, blasphemy, disobedient children, homosexuality. Well, actually, only gay men because the Bible doesn't say anything about lesbianism. So, you know, they're fine. Idolatry, incest, kidnapping, rape, and witchcraft. Gary North believes the best way to deal with such people is putting them to death by stoning. What makes this particularly appealing for North is that it would be a community project, something we could all participate in. Damar is a little less strict. He'd only stone gays who were caught in the act. Otherwise, he says, I'm happy to just drive them back to the closet. Of course, Rashtuni and his followers buy into the view that God has a special covenant with America, which can only be blessed and proper if the covenant is upheld by way of obedience to the law. North makes the interesting but unsupported claim that, and now I'm quoting, the United States is only one of several authorized distributors of Christianity. And if its people cease to be faithful, then its distributorship will pass to others entirely. I have to say that the term authorized distributor makes me think of a car dealership or Amway. The idea that somehow the U.S. has some special power given by God that most other nations don't have is, as far as I can tell, utterly baseless. Where is this so-called covenant? Why haven't I heard about this before? You might also be interested to know that North's book is titled Liberating Planet Earth. When conservative Christians use words like liberation or freedom, you can be sure they mean something very different from the meaning most of us attach to them. North claims that the U.S. needs to become thoroughly Christian. And now, again, a quote from North. The long-term goal of Christians in politics should be to gain exclusive control over the franchise. You know, the special distributorship that's been given to the U.S. He hopes to see a time when, and now I'm quoting, those who refuse to submit publicly to Christianity and its male Christian leaders must be denied citizenship. That little nugget of theocratic thought comes from his book titled Political Polytheism, The Myth of Pluralism. DeMar's books include The Politically Incorrect Guides to Islam and the Crusades and The Marketing of Evil, which covers everything, and I'm quoting, from easy divorce and unrestricted abortion on demand to extreme body piercing and teaching homosexuality to grade schoolers. That's a really interesting combination of things, isn't it? If you want an example of what this might look like in practice, Consider that the Republican convention in Arizona passed a floor resolution to the effect that the Constitution calls for, and now I'm quoting, a republic based on the absolute laws of the Bible, not democracy. You might think, oh, that must have just happened, but the reality is that it happened in 1988. In other words, the Christian nationalists have been working on this for a long time. 
But what's unusual about Reconstructionism as a movement is that it flies under the radar, which has made it easier for them to pursue their goals of getting rid of other religions and taking over the United States. When they say they want to take back America, they really mean it. They used to hate the Supreme Court, but now they're kind of in love with it. But they're against any kind of humanistic or secular values that they see in public schools and the government in general. They're against minimum wage laws and any kind of governmental regulation or interference. They're also against home mortgages since the Bible warns against usury, unless their length is only for seven years. It should come as no surprise that they're in favor of a strictly patriarchal system in which only men would be allowed to have power and to vote. Yes, Christian Reconstructions believe that women should never have been allowed to vote in elections. I'm not quite sure, however, on their stand regarding mixing fabrics, another part of Old Testament law that makes your cotton shirt that's got a little polyester in it an abomination. By the way, Rush Juni was also a Holocaust denier. For Rush Juni, there are two biblical passages that provide the foundation for his thought. One comes from Genesis 1.28, in which men are commanded to have dominion over the earth. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. More progressive evangelicals read this as a mandate to care for the creation. But the Reconstructionists read it as something like, We men, remember not women, have authority over the whole world and we can do with it whatever we want. The other passage is what is usually called the Great Commission, in which Jesus asks his followers to spread the word. Here's what the passage actually says. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Most Christians read that passage as basically a call to evangelism. But Reconstruction is focused on the part that reads, make disciples of all nations, which they interpret as, make all governments in the world Christian. The goal, in other words, is not merely to have dominion over the fishes and the birds, but over all human beings everywhere. It isn't enough to convert souls. The Reconstructionists want to take over all governments all over the world. In case you're thinking, oh, that couldn't be that extreme, consider what North has said. We must use the doctrine of religious liberty until we train up a generation of people who know that there is no religious neutrality, no neutral law, no neutral education, and no neutral civil government. Then they will get busy constructing a Bible-based social, political, and religious order which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. That's as clear a statement as you can find for their view that in the end, only Christians deserve to have liberty. That's all for today. Don't forget that On Becoming is on Twitter, at On Becoming Pod, and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Again, our email address is onbecomingpodcast at email.com. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Or you can send a donation through PayPal 
by the PayPal app or through paypal.com. The username for both is our email address on becomingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode, which will focus on Doug Wilson and what's happening in Moscow.